everyone, it's Patrick Gray here, back with another Not Information Security podcast with my pal Dan Illick. Uh, we are tentatively calling this podcast Serious Business. Um, for those of you who don't know him, Dan is an Australian comedian uh, who works these days as a satirist for AJ+, Al Jazeera's online arm over there in California. And he is joining me today to have a chat about two topics. Firstly, the shooting at a dickhead convention. Uh, you know, this is where a group of complete morons thought it would be a great idea to set up a competition to see who could draw the most offensive caricature of the Prophet Muhammad. And yeah, a couple of guys turned up and started shooting at them. Shocking, shocking, I know. Who'd have thought that denigrating a group of extremely religious people by mocking their god could result in this sort of thing? I never knew this was possible. Uh, so, yeah, we speak to Dan about that. He's got some interesting thoughts. You know, being a comedian, being a satirist, he's got some very interesting thoughts around uh, freedom of speech, double standards, Charlie Hebdo, and more. Uh, and we also speak about Apple's stupid watch, the Apple Watch. Uh, and I should warn you, too, I do not edit this podcast for bad language, and there are F-bombs plenty. So if you have your kids in the car and you don't want them hearing my awful, awful language, Please turn off this podcast now. But Dan, let's talk about this shooting over there in the United States. Thankfully, no one was killed by the attackers, which is something. But uh, I understand the woman who was running this contest to draw depictions of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, Muhammad has form in this area. But yeah, I, like for starters, what happened? So there are these two guys, um, they're uh, Islamic, uh, what people would call, uh, the mainstream media would call Islamic fundamentals, uh, turned up to a cartoon uh, competition. The cartoon competition was uh, in order to create the funniest caricature of the Prophet Muhammad and you would walk away with a cool $15,000 if you could draw a very funny Muhammad. What, um, what, now- what, I've just got to stop you there and ask, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> what could possibly That's go right. wrong? That's right. Well, it's hard. To, it's hard to know what could go wrong. Um, Pamela Geller, who created the competition, is a renowned idiot. Um, she is renowned for inflaming tensions uh, amongst the Islamic community in, community in America, and she does these things on purpose. She's like, "Well, Muslims are offended by the Prophet Muhammad. Hey, well, we're going to have a Prophet Muhammad cartoon competition. Yes, we are going to fan the." Flames of hatred just a little step further. It's like poking a dog with a stick. Uh, Or, yeah, or the Quran. It's like poking a dog with a Quran. Poking a dog with a Quran. I'm a little bit worried the gunman might turn up at our houses following that little statement. (laughs) But, but, I mean, it's an extreme act of uh, provocation, isn't it? And, of course, now... Uh, it's given their cause some legitimacy. They can say, see, these people are violent. Uh, they're, they're, they're offended by our free speech and our freedoms. Uh, so, you know, it just goes to show you uh, what those is- Islamims are like. I mean, that's how this is going to play out, and that's what I find the most disturbing thing about this. Of course, the two guys turned up, opened fire, got killed. I think they clipped one guy in the leg and then both wound up dead. This is going to bring... You, you would think this would actually perversely bring more people into the fold of the types of people who are attending that cartoon convention. Well, uh, yeah, p- potentially a next year's cartoon con- cartoon um, uh, convention is going to be probably a lot bigger uh, or have a, lot, a little bit more security. But the idea that Pamela Geller even conceived this this uh, event in the first place is is just so baffling. It's 
outwitting it's it, she's just basically going out of her way to be a dickhead she's going out of her way to be malicious and going out of her way to provoke hatred um and it, I don't think it's very helpful at all. It's not helpful to anyone. The United States is often a tinderbox, um, which is why I'm going to start a competition. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to start a cartoon competition for the. I'm going to give away uh, my life savings, which is eight thousand dollars, for someone to uh, someone to draw the best gay Jesus on the cross uh, in San Francisco. That shouldn't be too hard. But well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have that conversation. But this is the difference between provoking marginalized people and provoking people who aren't marginalized. Because we all remember Piss Christ. You know what I mean? We remember Piss Christ, the artwork, which was what it was a crucifix in piss. You know, uh, yeah. pretty accurately labelled. The old Piss Christ was, uh, but nonetheless, lack of imagination. <laughs> exactly. But no one got shot. You know, uh, because I guess Christians. You know, they're not a marginalised group, whereas uh, I think to a degree you can't really say the same for, for Muslims at the moment. I mean, you look at uh, the Muslim world, it's experiencing a lot of upheaval. Uh, Muslims living abroad are experiencing a lot of uh, discrimination. It just sort of seems like, you know, way to kick a guy when he's down. That's what this feels like to me. Oh, but it's not even that. Like, it's not even... I, I, kind, of, I kind of feel bad for Muslims in general because of all these idiots who go crazy at the sight of a cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad and then cause mm. trouble at it. That is just such that's just like such bad form. That we kind of live in this world of dichotomy where um where people take things so literally and they take things upon their own person to to kind of forge a place in the world where they uh they see that their lives will be better by going to a cartoon convention and opening fire on on this convention. They went there with the full knowledge that they'll probably die. The guy put out tweets the night before, saying that he hopes that he'll be remembered as the Mujahideen. And that's kind of what goes through a, he a person's head when they go, right, tomorrow my life is so shit, I'm going to open up fire on this cartoon convention and I know I'm going to... Well, I, I think it's just that age-old thing where the more you marginalise a group of people, the more extreme the fringe, the extreme fringe of that group of people becomes. Uh, so you've got, you know, some really radical, crazy Christians in the United States, like think of the Westboro Baptist Church. I don't know if you can even call them Christians, <laughs> to be honest. They don't go around blowing things know, up or, or, or shooting people because they don't have to. You know, the first episode of Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, they caused a, a national crisis when they had a sketch on the TV show called Crazy Christians. Oh dear. <laughs> and you just saying crazy Christians has sparked in my head. Great. So now now the Westboro Baptists are going to get their media monitors to media monitor this this podcast and they're going to come and pick at your house. I will I will take that as a as a roaring sign of success. <laughs> but I mean it's, it's just the case, isn't it? That they're going to they're going to hold out signs that say God hates infosec. Yes, well, he probably would. They know. They're going to hold a sign out the front of your house saying God hates greys. Ah. <laughs> oh, that was the joke I was looking in for. In the case of InfoSec though, we are denying information its natural liberty. So, you know, there is something to be said <laughs> for right. uh, said for that. But I got to ask you Dan, like when this whole Je suis Charlie thing kicked off. I mean, those guys, mm. Charlie Hebdo, uh, you know, of course, I would never in, in, in any under any conditions condone that sort of violent act. But those guys in the same vein were being deliberately provocative. You had also at the time, uh, I think, a French blogger who'd written some very unkind things uh, about Jews was charged under under, uh, you know, racial vilification laws. 
over there. So that yeah. was a case of, well, you know, free speech is free until you say the wrong thing. Yet these guys were allowed to go unchecked, just, you know, insulting and degrading Muslims for quite a long time. And then, of course, the result of that was was a massacre, which was terribly sad and, and, and really horrible. But at the same time, I wasn't jumping on the whole Je suis Charlie, you know, hashtag bandwagon. How about you? Well, I think for a lot of people, particularly in my profession, it can be deemed as what we like to call the slippery slope. Jushui Charlie, Charlie Hebdo are at the one end of the spectrum where they are borderline racist and borderline awful with what they do. And a lot of their stuff just isn't funny. It is just out there to intentionally provoke and inflame and be malicious in the way they do their comedy. Whereas I think, you know, a more considered approach, um, you could get away with cartoons that are similar but uh, are uh, uh, that may show the Prophet Muhammad, but in an entirely um, funny and respectful kind well, of way. Well, you can't. I mean, that's the thing that, in Islam. It is it is haram to depict the Prophet Muhammad, you know? so No, it... it, it Sure, sure it is, but I think I think you can, if you do it the right way, you, you just get away with it because mm. you know something's funny. Something's so it's not funny. necessarily the depiction that you think people might be reacting to as the intent behind the depiction. Yeah, I think the intent is such a big part of mm. this. Um, I think I think in, in, the intent and whether something is is malign in, in its purpose is is a really big part of it. And this is something that I struggle with often as a comedian. Like I have to just make sure that. When I'm doing a joke, maybe the first thought I come to may be a malign joke, and I kind of think, "Oh, is that fair? Is is it a? What proof do I have that I can back up this joke? And if I am solid in the knowledge that I can say what I want to say, and I know it's going to be offensive, but I also know that it's it's based in truth, then I should be able to get away with it. Um, and that and I, I've done I've done stuff in my career where it's kind of borderline. Um, well, I was, I was actually going to ask you if you've if you found yourself on the wrong side of that a couple of times, and in retrospect, you've gone, "Oh, that was that was bad. I shouldn't have done that." Well, I, the biggest one in my career was I, I created a musical called Beaconsfield, a musical in A flat minor, and it was about the Beaconsfield mind. I remember that there was a, there was a bit of a controversy there. I believe you may have found yourself <laughs> uh, printed up by the tabloid newspapers. Well, yeah, not only that, I I did like about ten different radio interviews in the space of an hour. At, at six o'clock in the morning, and I, I was like the most hated man in Australia for about three days. I remember days. that now. <laughs> <laughs> um, all because of a pun, you know. All because <laughs> I, I dared to put a pun in my title. Um, and my the the play was about was not about the death of Larry Knight. It was not poking fun at his death. It was it was about the media exploitation of a, of a tragic disaster and, and Channel Seven and Channel Nine trying to out out showbiz each other over the over the tragedy. And so that's what the, that's what the play was about. <clears throat> and you know it it, it was it, it was so cool to see that the media was just kind of eating itself at that point. So the media was like up up in arms about. Um, how dare I make fun of this tragic mind disaster? Um, but in fact, the but the play itself is actually about the about their exploitation, the, tra- yeah, the tragedy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so that's I really enjoyed that moment, even though I was mentally unprepared for the onslaught that was the Australian media. Um, I mean, what did you do? Door. I mean, that that would be a good time to go camping, I'd imagine. Well, I didn't. I didn't have time because I had to put on this show. Like the media jumped on it, and we hadn't even put it on stage at, at all for the very first time. Like we hadn't even. It just hadn't even been on stage yet. So, um, 
it was one of those it was one of those very strange things like at, at six o'clock in the morning the first phone call was from Matt and Joe and Fox FM in Melbourne and they were like oh what have you done oh this is crazy wait, 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 good luck mm. <laughs> then the second phone call was Neil Mitchell from 3AW in Melbourne he was like you are the worst person in the world how dare you blah 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 <laughs> You wouldn't do a musical about Hitler. And I said, well, um, Mel Brooks did one. Uh, and so it was, it was uh, one of those things. And then all the whole day, I was just doing media the entire day. And then the next day, I got off to do Sunrise and Today Show, but I kind of passed them down because I was so drained by the media experience. Um, and so that was, a, that was an interesting exercise. And my play, uh, it ended up getting five stars in The Age during the Melbourne Comedy Festival. And it was um, it was. It was sold out during the Fringe, which is awesome. And word got around quickly that this was actually a pretty good thing. Um, and so you can actually, I mean, if, you, if, if the work itself can stand up um, to scrutiny and is based in truth and um, punches up the right way, you shouldn't have to apologise for the work you create. And that's what I've been trying to do my entire. That's what I've been trying to do my entire career. And it, it's a it's a fine line, but you just got to know where you stand on it. And often I throw out a bunch of jokes because they just don't work because of that. Like I'll, they'll often they might be punching down, or they're just not quite right, or they're not based in truth. But it is funny. Um, but even though it's funny, it's not based in truth. So you got to get rid mm. of it. So these are all the decisions you have to kind of make um, when you're doing this kind of work. But these these now, the other these Muhammad cartoons. I mean, they have a long history. We're talking, you know something like a decade when there was the, I think it was a Danish newspaper published them and then the uh, Iranian Iranian government uh, sort of responded by saying, by holding a competition to draw the best anti-Semitic um, uh, cartoon to which an Israeli newspaper, and I loved this, actually ran their own competition to see who could publish the most offensive anti-Semitic cartoon, <laughs> which was, um, you know, brilliant response there. But these things, you know, this has been... Uh, going on for a long time, and it's hard to imagine yeah. that creating a, a a cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad is anything but malicious provocation. So at that point, why is it that we're not seeing people like these these sort of hard right anti-Muslim Islamophobes? Why aren't we seeing them being subjected to the same hate speech laws that might apply to anti-Semitism, for example? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, because I, I think, I, I think with, it just proves that Muslims don't have political clout, which kind of, you know, goes yeah. some way to explain why they have such a such an active radical fringe. I, I think it's also annoying for many of my Muslim friends who then have to do things like constantly apologise for people who often share their their own religion. Mm. <laughs> it's such a it's such a fucking weird thing. Like I, it's just like these people who do these acts of violence are just so heinously insecure with themselves and their, their place in the world that that's the last resort for them. And if they do that, that, that is their quickest route to success and salvation. You know, like that's the being shot by a cop in defense of Islam is the quickest way they can bring honor upon their, their family. Mm. I, guess, I guess the question is, is there any way to, if you're advancing satire with some sort of brilliant comic about the Prophet Muhammad, which is a legitimate criticism of contemporary Islam done in a very satirically clever way, is that defensible with the knowledge that that depiction itself is haram and against Islamic beliefs and offensive to Muslims? Is it okay? I think so. <laughs> because it's not, it's, not, you know, it's not malign. 
it's it's like a truthful criticism. And I think you can. I think you should be able to get away with that. So you think it's in, in, intent is everything? You're saying intent is everything, and I, I'm kind of with intent, you on that. Ah, yeah. oh, intent, intent is absolutely everything. And these people running this competition had the intent to provoke people to come and fucking shoot them in the head. That's why they had cops ready to go when these guys turned mm. up. And the guy who shot them was like this old marksman um, cop who. who these guys were pouring down bullets from the semi-automatics and this guy whipped out his pistol and popped these two guys off pretty quickly. That's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. But like the, the, idea that, the idea that security was, was beefed up because this woman decided that she would, intend, she, she would go out of her way to maliciously provoke um, idiots to come and fight her so that she could promote her cause. Mm. So there we go. Intent is everything, says the comedian. Uh, who was at one time briefly uh, Australia's most hated man. I do, I, I do believe I remember actually seeing that headline, Dan. Now I'm moving on to something completely different, the Apple Watch. And it turns out, drumroll please, if you were heavily tattooed, uh, the Apple the Apple Watch's uh, you know, skin sensitivity sensor, which takes your pulse and all of that, just won't work. And I'm just thinking, I, you know, the amount of uh, press coverage that Apple products in general generate is just wild right so now all of a sudden there's those handful of people i guess there's there'd be quite a few in san francisco right because it's kind of a <laughs> you know tattoos a hip kind of city there's a lot of people who are who yeah. are rah rah rahing because they can't get their apple watch to work correctly but i gotta ask what's the fucking point of an apple watch i'm, I'm a technology journalist and i don't fucking get it dan please explain it to me man I think the point of the Apple Watch is to prove how tech savvy you are to other people. See, what, what what's happened is is that Apple has become such a um, uh, you know the Verge have a good name for these people. They call them the normals. Um, Apple products have become such a bastion of the normals that if you are not up with your Apple products, then you can't be seen to be part of the normals tribe. Uh, and so, whereas this kind of tech was once the once the bastion of people who were early adopters. Now the normals uh, are now the early adopters, but only with Apple products. And so I, my thing, my theory is, is that this is a fashion statement and this is uh, basically, um, basically normal people thinking they're cutting edge by getting an Apple Watch. Whereas we all know, you and I and the listener to this podcast knows that the only people who are cutting edge in this game are the pebble donors, the people who gave their hard-earned cash to Kickstarter to get the pebble happening. They're the real winners. Is that that e-paper watch thing? Yeah, that's the e-paper watch but from see, about five years ago. I just don't get wearable was- tech, man. Like when Google Glass came out, I just I remember seeing a friend of mine wearing them because he got on the program somehow. I don't know because, you know, I know people like that. And I was just like, man, mm. you look fucking stupid. You look ridiculous. And they gave them to me. I tried them on and I'm like, this is fucking stupid. This is ridiculous. This is never going to go anywhere. And sure enough, Google Glass just sort of slowly death spiraled. And, you know, Google, were, I think we're kind of hoping people would forget that Glass was a thing that they touted as the next big thing. But it was fucking stupid. Mm. And I think the Apple Watch is fucking mm. stupid as well. I recently upgraded from an from a iPhone 5. I bought myself a 6 Plus, right? It's huge. It's Beautiful. like a flat screen TV that goes into my pocket. I would never go back to a normal size phone. So I'm wondering, if I'm going for this huge real estate, why am I going to put this tiny little screen on my wrist? It's just stupid. It's crazy. I don't get it. 
It is truly a fashion accessory for people who who want to appear to be cutting edge in the in the great bell curve of the normal. But, but is it sustainable? I, I mean, we, heard we, this. we saw that with in the case of Google Glass, we've we've seen news over the last couple of weeks. I think that I many... think I think Google Google Glass is a total different category. Yeah. Google Glass is Google Glass is right at the front of the bell curve for people who create. For, for people who uh, are into tech, and it wasn't even available to the no, no, I know it that, was, but it's, it was for developers it's only. It's not the actual implementation that I'm that I'm that, uh, that I have a problem with. It's the entire concept of these things, right? I get how you would use some sort of augmented reality thing in the case of like driving my car. I might want some information, you know, in front of me. That's cool. Mini are actually working on some augmented, uh, augmented, augmented, augmented uh, reality uh, goggles <laughs> for their cars, right? And I can understand how that would be a cool application. But wearing those things just fundamentally as a concept just seems really fucking stupid to me. And again, with the Apple Watch, you say it's a fashion statement. I mean, if it's a fashion statement, surely this is a fashion fad and this cannot be a sustaining product. I, it just can't be. I I, I kind of tend to disagree with you in this regard. I reckon the Apple Watch is is a fashion statement for the moment, but I don't think this first generation is going to be the watch that you or I buy. The, I think the early adopters... Probably the people who are into tech and the early adopters probably won't even go out and buy this one because they know that maybe the next generation Apple Watch is going to be the watch that they know will work properly. Um, I certainly feel that way about the Apple Watch. Uh, I also think when it comes to Google Glass, I think Google Glass was a noble experiment and people only use the word noble because they don't want to use the word failure. Uh, <laughs> it was a bold um, plan. It was a it was a bold plan. So while it was a noble experiment, I feel like Google Glass is going to come back in some form um, that's going to be a bit more socially acceptable, a bit more interesting. Uh, I don't know if you caught Windows's announcements this week from Chicago, but they are going hard on all sorts of kind of VR technology. The idea that you can have a Skype screen um, in in an aug- or in an aug- augmented reality space. The idea you can throw up a, a Skype conversation on one wall of your living room or, or watch YouTube on another wall, wall of your living room um, if you're wearing a helmet. Now, the future may not be helmets, but the idea that the tech is there at the moment, they're, they're working on that that form. And the idea that maybe we will all be using these augmented reality devices that are socially acceptable to wear at some point and that destination, we're not there, we're not at that destination yet. We've got to hop on the goofy train. We've got to hop on the, Google Glass the terrible train. Google yeah, Glass yeah. train to get there. We've got to hop on the terrible Apple Watch to get okay, there. Okay, but you've just explained and to me a killer application for augmented reality, right? I get that. That could be really cool. As I cited the case where driving, uh, it would be useful. So I can think of you know specific applications where augmented reality glasses would be really cool. I cannot do yeah. the same for a fucking apple watch like what possible reason are you gonna have to want to strap a watch to your body every day that you have to charge like i think it's what every two days you got to charge the bloody thing what what what's every day every day there you go so what's the compelling reason dan that would make you actually put one of these things on spend hundreds of dollars on it and then put it on why why well, you, you can sync it up with your loved one's Apple Watch and you can send them your heartbeat. And isn't that nice? Killer app. <laughs> when, you're, when, you're away, when you're away from your significant other who annoys you most of the time and that's why you're away from them, <laughs> they can still annoy you by tapping their wrist to let you know that, uh, that you should be on your best behaviour. Seriously, though, can you think of a, you know, of a must-have application for something like this? Yeah, I think the must-have application is the time. I'd love to have like some sort of clock on my wrist. <laughs> 
What a radical idea. We should patent that. <laughs> Dan Illick, it's been my absolute pleasure to chat with you. Uh, and hopefully we can do this again before I uh, uh, bugger off for a holiday for a couple of weeks. But, mate, I've really enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks for all your nice comments on Twitter and Facebook too, guys. Not you, Pat. You haven't given me any nice comments. But your, <laughs> your tweets and your Facebook comments have been terrific. Thank you. <laughs>